Well, thank you for that, Christine. I mean, this is a great opportunity. We get to invest in the lives of young people. And hey, you're never going to know the impact that you might have if you don't take a step. So I highly encourage you to go to that welcome, the welcome desk out here. Talk to Christine. Get some more information. Pray about it. Um, at least be a prayer partner, because uh, this is a really good opportunity to reach into that next generation. Uh, if you got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. Today, we get to continue our series, taking a look at the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and I just want to give you a little recap. Maybe you're coming in to this series a little late. Um, give you a little overview of what we're doing, where we're at. Uh, so we've been taking a 30,000-foot view of the book of 1 Samuel. We are trying to take it you know, from way up high because we get to see a big, broad uh, spectrum of things that can happen. Um, and you know, sometimes we will crawl through books. Other times, we want to take a 30,000-foot view. Um, and today, we are coming into chapter 16 of, this, of the book of 1 Samuel. And in chapter 16, we get this really distinct transition here. So throughout the book of 1 Samuel, you really get to take a look at three leaders. We've took a, taken a look at two of them so far, uh, but really three. So the first one that we got to take a look at was the leader God provided, which was Samuel. Uh, remember, Samuel's mother was unable to have children, and she prayed, and, and miraculously, she gave birth to a son named Samuel and dedicated him to the Lord, and it says that he grew up in the presence of the Lord. And it says that the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel so that Samuel's words would not fall to the ground. That Samuel was the leader that God provided, and under Samuel's leadership, he turned the people back to the Lord. He got the gods out of their homes and turned the people back to the Lord. The people of Israel once again became what the people of Israel should be, that they devoted themselves and they turned to the Lord. Uh, and then over time, uh, the people wanted a king. They wanted a, a man to rule over them, and they rejected the Lord as their king, and they wanted a king, so they got Saul. Saul is the second leader, and Saul is the, the leader the people wanted. And we're going to explore this a little bit more today. Uh, but the people wanted a king, and they got a king. And Saul, who is still going to be throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, um, looked apart, looked like a king. He was tall, good-looking, but turned out to be a complete failure. Um, you know, some of the biggest differences between Saul and Samuel we actually find in Scripture. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in, in chapter 7, verse 13, this is the results under Samuel's leadership. It says, so the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hand or the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So this was the result under Samuel's leadership, the leader that God provided, that he turned the people back to the Lord and, and there was peace. Uh, and then we see the results of Saul's leadership. In chapter 14, verse 52, it says, All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mightier brave man, he took him into his service. So there was, you know, a lot of peace with Samuel and a lot of war with Saul. So the, the Lord rejects Saul, not because of war, but because of partial obedience. Uh, Pastor John took a look at this last week, but it was partial obedience, which in reality is, is disobedience. And it wasn't just a one-off. It was multiple times. You remember back in chapter 15, God said to go destroy the Amalekites 
completely. And Saul was like, I did, but, you know, and if, if you ever have to add a but after something you were supposed to do, you probably didn't do it. You know, like, did you clean your room? I did, but don't be mad. Like, and this is exactly what happened. He's like, I did, but I also kept King Agag, their king. I kept some sheep, some cattle, but don't worry about those. Uh, and Samuel was like, you know, he tells him, the Lord has rejected you as king. And he's torn the kingdom from you and has given it to one better than you. And this brings us today to the last leader that we're going to be taking a look at in the book of 1 Samuel. And it was the leader that God chose. Uh, an unlikely candidate. An unlikely boy, some shepherd out in a field, the youngest of the sons of Jesse. I mean, if you were to take a look at this candidate, you would probably say that there is no way that this guy could become king. And this leads into the bottom line this, this morning, something that we're going to begin to see in chapter 16 and something we're definitely going to see in chapter 17 is, is the bottom line is God doesn't see how we see. That God sees deeper. He sees the heart. When we can look at the appearance of something, God sees the character. He sees the heart of it. So I hope by now you are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to be starting at verse 1. This is what it says. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Will you join me as we open up this morning in some prayer? Father, we're grateful for today. We are grateful for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. Lord, we get to rejoice and we get to celebrate. And uh, Lord, I pray today as we op open up our Bibles and we take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we get to explore David's life, as we get to take a look at the leader that you chose, Lord, I, I pray you give us the eyes to see Christ in the life of David. And uh, Lord, I pray that you give us the realization and the understanding that our perspective, our, our view can be so flawed. So Lord, I pray you guide us and give us the strength to Seek your will, your words, and align ourselves, not with how we feel, but with how you see things. And Lord, we're grateful for your word, and I pray today as we open up your word and you allow me to speak, as you give me breath to speak, I pray that you give me the words to speak. And Lord, I pray I say nothing that you do not want me to say. Lord, we pray that your presence in our life shapes our life, changes our life, grows our life, aligns. Lord, I pray that our life aligns with you. And most importantly, I pray that our lives bring you glory and honor. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we are coming into chapter 16 of the book of 1 Samuel, uh, we are at a time in Israel's history where Israel asked for a king. And they got one. And we are reminded really throughout the text, I mean, really from chapter 8 until now, that Saul was the king that they chose you don't have to turn there, but chapter 12, verse 13 of 1 Samuel is what Samuel says. He says, now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. And Saul looked the part. 
I mean, he could win battles. He could rally a nation. He could provide political strength and stability. But he disobeyed God. So the Lord rejects him, and the people's choice failed. And the failure of Saul was real. Like, the failure of Saul was real, and it had real consequences. Like, this failure of this man is, is going to have an impact on the Lord's people. But, but here's, here's the thing. God doesn't allow his work to be stopped by the failures of a man. Uh, and same is true around you. You, know, you, know, you might see problems and failures you know, in your life or around your life, but God's progress and his purpose for your life doesn't stop because of failures around you. I mean, look, look what happens in verse, in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So something I've learned is that there is a time to mourn and there is a time to move. You know, this opening scene in chapter 16, Samuel is mourning over Saul. I mean, he's mourning because of Saul, that the Lord has rejected him, and this is going to have an impact. So Samuel's mourning over this failure. Failure. Remember, like Samuel was the one who anointed Saul. Samuel was the one who told the people, there is no one like Saul in all of Israel. And Samuel is mourning over this failure, and you might feel like you're maybe in a similar position as Samuel. Mourning over the failures of the past. And like, maybe you failed, Maybe you did. Maybe you failed in a marriage. Maybe, maybe you failed with your kids. Maybe you failed with your job. Maybe you failed in school. Maybe you feel like you failed with your faith. Maybe you feel like you failed with your family. And you might think about it every day and dwell on it, mourn over it. It is easy to look backwards. But there is a reason that the rearview mirror in a car is only about like this big. And the windshield's a whole lot bigger. Like, I mean, could you, could you imagine like actually driving a car, moving forward, going where you're actually supposed to go, not hitting anything, staying on the path, if you only looked at the rearview mirror? I mean, friend, the same is true with life. Like you might just be glued to a rearview mirror and God might be saying like, get up, move forward, grab your horn, fill it with oil, go. Like, to think a situation is so messed up for God to move, man, that's crazy. Like, there is a time to mourn, and there is a time to move. And for Samuel right now, the time to move is now. And Samuel was pointed to the future by the Lord's commands. He says, get up, fill your horn with oil, go to Bethlehem. Like, we're not done. We still have work to do. Go to Bethlehem. I have chosen a man. God is not done due to the failures of a man. And the precise words that, that God says to Samuel here in, in the Hebrew, it says, this is what God says. He says, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. That I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. You know, seeing is, is very, very important here. Uh, because we're going to see, you know, God doesn't see like we see. He sees things differently. Like as humans, we look at the appearance. God looks at the heart. So something that should really catch our eye here is God saying, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. For myself a king. And you might be thinking, like, what does that even mean? God's saying that this king from Jesse's line 
is going to be rather different than the previous king. That this king that is going to be a boy on a field is going to be rather different than the previous king. A lot different than Saul. You remember back with uh, Saul, with the previous appointment of Saul as king, uh, throughout chapter 8 until now, it has been so emphasized that Saul was chosen by the people for themselves. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but chapter 8, verse 5, says, appoint for us a king, the elder said to Samuel. Chapter 8, verse 18, Samuel referred to the king that they demanded as your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. Chapter 8, verse 22, God told Samuel, make a king for them. Chapter 12, verse 13, we see it again. He says, here is your king, the one that you asked for. Like It is clear that Saul was appointed because of the people's demands for themselves. And now the time has come, the Lord says to Samuel, for a different king. One after my own heart. One for myself. I remember back in chapter 13, this was, this was what, this was, this was what Samuel says to, to Saul, chapter 13, verse 14. He says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him a ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart. So Samuel, like, get up, fill your horn with oil, go to Bethlehem, anoint the next king who is a king for myself, a king after my own heart. And I hope you are seeing a lot of connections here. I hope, I hope the light bulbs are, are popping off. Because before David is even mentioned in the Bible, and his story is screaming Jesus. So the word anoint in, in Hebrew is, is masa. That's how we get the word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And in the Greek, it's Christ. Christ means anointed one. So Samuel, go to Bethlehem. Find a boy. Messiah him. He is a king after my own heart. He is a king for myself. I hope we're seeing the connections. So he says, Samuel, go to Bethlehem. But look what happens in verse 2, chapter 16. It says, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So so the Lord tells Samuel to go and Samuel's like, hold up. You know, if the Lord tells you to go, if you want an excuse, you can find one. Like, I mean, it's really easy to find an excuse to not do what the Lord has called you to do. I mean, you can find an excuse under the rock, (laughs) you know. And maybe the Lord, you know, recently the Lord has been poking at you, you know, pricking at your heart, wanting you to get involved, maybe involved with, you know, Kids Hope USA. Go take a step and get involved in in a kid's life. Or maybe the Lord's been poking at you to get involved with, you know, uh, missions or or get involved with a ministry to serve. Or or maybe he's been poking at you to to get involved in your community, to to the neighbors on your right and left that you don't know their name. And it is easy for us to be like, wait, God, like I don't know if I have enough time to get involved in this. Uh, like, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I'm qualified to do this. 
Like, like God, what, what if I break my leg on the way to go serving and then I can't go serve? I mean, like, we could find excuses everywhere. There are a million excuses on why to not do what the Lord has called you to do. And just because Samuel is a prophet of God doesn't really mean he's any different than us. He did the same thing. He was like, wait, God, like, I can't go. If I, if I go, Saul will kill me. So now why is Samuel really hesitant here? So to get to Bethlehem from Ramah is 11 miles. Uh, and in order to get, Ramah is Samuel's hometown. In order to get from Ramah to Bethlehem, you have to go through Gibeah, which is Saul's town. Uh, and remember, the relationship between Samuel and Saul is not good. It's been like broken, and Saul still has control of the army. So it'd be kind of awkward if Samuel was going through Gibeah and gets asked, like, hey, where are you going? And he's like, I'm on my way to Bethlehem to anoint the next king because Saul is a failure. Probably a little fight there. <laughs> Probably would be a little conflict. So to ease, you know, ease Samuel's concerns, God says, take a heifer with you, which is a young cow, um, and go to Bethlehem to sacrifice. So once again... God sees differently. You know, Samuel sees the danger in moving forward. God sees the outcome. And this is like very stereotypical of humans. Like we see circumstances. We, it's hard for us to look past them. We like to look at the here and now. What is right in front of us, not past them? Anyone in here run a, a marathon before? Or a half marathon? 5K? 1K? How many of you are proud you got from the truck to the seat? <laughs> there you go. But, but how long would those races ha have taken if you actually thought about every step you took? I mean, if you thought about like, man, my feet hurt. My legs feel like they're burning. If you're thinking about putting every foot in front of the other. Like, that's going to be a long race. What you do is you look at where you're going. You look at the finish line. Where, 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 where is the next step? Like, where, where is the finish line? And, and, and this is the thing. This is the same thing for the life of a Christ follower. I mean, this is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. This is what he says. He says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's like, I, I press forward to the goal. I'm not looking at the circumstances that are right here, right now, because when Paul wrote that, he was in prison. He's literally chained up as he's writing this, but he's like, I press on towards the goal. So Christ calls me heavenward. You see, circumstances can be good. Circumstances can be bad. And, and, and the thing is, that will just change with life. You will have good days. You will have bad days. But as Christ followers, we have this certainty in eternity, and we press on until that day. We press on with the joy that is found in Christ because the joy that is found in Christ is not circumstantial. It doesn't change with what life throws at you. It's a lasting joy, and the focus is on the finish line. The focus is on the outcome, not the circumstances. And Samuel here is pointed, pointed towards the outcome rather than the circumstances. Look what happens in verse 4. It says, Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel, once again, did what Saul failed to do. Uh, he, he obeyed the Lord. 
I mean, if you notice in verse 4, it says, Samuel did what the Lord said. There wasn't like a but after it, but he did what Saul failed to do. That he got up, he grabbed his horn, he filled it with oil, he went. He went to Bethlehem, but when the prophet arrived in Bethlehem, he didn't get this warm welcome. Actually, it was quite the opposite. The people of the town were afraid. Like, Samuel, what are you doing here? You might be like, okay, why are they afraid? Uh, probably because of what happened last chapter. Uh, in chapter 15, remember, uh, God told Saul to destroy the Amalekites, and Saul was like, I did, but I kept King Agag, some sheep, some cattle. So Samuel tells him, you know, the Lord has rejected you as king. And Samuel was like, bring King Agag here right now. And then Samuel killed him. Samuel did what Saul failed to do. And this conflict between Saul and Samuel was probably pretty well-known amongst the people. Like, word of that has probably definitely spread. But Samuel assures them that he came in peace, and he invites them to the sacrifice, but he takes particular interest in inviting a man named Jesse to the sacrifice. So, so look what happens in verse 6. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Elihim and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shemaiah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So, so when Jesse's sons arrive to the sacrifice, Samuel's eye is drawn to one of them in particular, Eliab, which is the oldest of, of the sons of Jesse. We find that out in the next chapter. But his eye is drawn towards Eliab, and, and he looks like a king. You know, even, even the great prophet says, like, surely this is the guy. And if you read it, read it, read it really closely, it says when, when they arrived, Samuel saw. Remember, seeing is a really big part in this chapter. Because, you know, from, from Samuel's perspective, Eliab is, I mean, he's the oldest of, of Jesse, but he looks the part. He's tall. He's, he's handsome. Like, he looks the part. Like, surely this is the guy. Surely this is the king. He's the perfect fit. But you remember, that's the, that's the same mistake they made with Saul. Like, Saul looked the part. I mean, Saul was described as a tall, handsome man. You see, Samuel was looking at the outward appearance. And the thing is, like, we do the same. I mean, it's what we have to go off of. Like, we have a flawed perspective because we cannot see someone's heart. But you know, something I'm grateful for is actually what the Lord tells Samuel in chapter 7, or in verse 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, God's point of view is not limited like ours is. God doesn't have a flawed perspective. His point of view is not deceived by someone's outward appearance. Because he sees their heart. And here's the thing, friend. He sees yours too. Like, you're not deceiving God 
You're not fooling God by the mask that we wear. Like, have you ever felt like maybe like life is, you know, falling apart and, and you know, you put on that mask, you, you, you put on that smile, you, you, you talk the talk, you walk the walk, you still act like everything's okay. You know, we come before God, we say the same prayer that we say before every dinner, like everything's okay. Like, like friend, you might be able to fool Christians around you, but you can't fool God. Like he sees the heart. He sees you. And, and in this story, God seeing the heart really helps us understand what he says and what he means when he says what he says in verse 1. When, when the Lord says, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. The Lord has seen because he sees his heart. The Lord sees a king because he sees his heart. And the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. We saw that back in chapter 13. So look what happens in verse 11. It says, so we asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel asked Jesse, like, are these all your sons? And I, and I, can, I can almost imagine, like, Jesse being like, yeah, they're all here. And then quickly remembering, like, oh, the little one, the, the boy, the, the one you, you don't bring to fancy dinners, <laughs> the one you don't bring to fancy sacrifices, the, the one you don't have in adult company, yes, the youngest. Uh, he's with the sheep. He doesn't even say his name. And this kind of goes to like the low regard that Jesse had for David. Like he doesn't even bring him into the sacrifice. Like he's just a shepherd boy. Yet it is this unlikely shepherd boy who is the one. That he is the king. You know, something I've realized is God often uses the unlikely for his work. Like God often uses the unlikely people to accomplish his work. So that everyone knows it's by the work of God. I mean, this is something we'll find throughout Scripture. You know, like Joseph. Joseph was one of the youngest of Jacob, sold into slavery by his brothers as a slave in Egypt. Went from being a slave in Egypt to being a prisoner in Egypt. And then over the course of like a day, he goes to ruling Egypt. Like he goes from prisoner to prince in a day. Unlikely. Moses. Moses had a speech impediment. Like, even when God comes to Moses and tells him, like, hey, I'm going to send you to Egypt to get my people, Moses is like, wait, hold up a second. Like, I can't speak well in front of people. Like, I can't speak. And God wasn't like, oh, okay, okay, I'll go find someone else. Like, no, he, he covered for that need. He's like, I'll send your brother with you. Rahab, a prostitute, saved the lives of Israelite spies. Gideon, a judge of Israel, he was a coward. He was threshing wheat in a wine press because he was too afraid to thresh wheat above ground because he was afraid of the Midianite oppressors. He was afraid of, of what they would do if he threshed wheat above ground of all things. But the Lord came to Gideon and was like, hey, you're a mighty warrior. Like, I'm going to use you to save my people. I mean, Jonah, a scared runaway prophet God used to save a pagan city. 
Jeremiah. When God called Jeremiah, he was just a boy. And even Jeremiah recognizes this. He's like, hey, I can't speak in front of people. I'm just a kid. Did God use Jeremiah to speak for him? The disciples, I mean, talk about the unlikely people. Like they were just common, uneducated men with a whole lot of problems. Yet God used them to change the world. Paul, he was a Pharisee hunting down Christians, trying to end this movement. Yet God turns around to being a great voice for Christ. He ended up writing over half of the New Testament. You see, God often uses the unlikely people to do his work. So, so if you've ever thought, you know, that you, if you ever felt like if the Lord has called you to do something, you ever felt like you're unqualified to do that, you're probably right. You know, but, but here's the thing, like God's not looking at your qualifications, he's looking at his. And, and there's a great saying, it, it is God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. God often uses the unlikely. David. David was just a shepherd boy, uh, the youngest of Jesse, yet he was a man after God's own heart. This, this boy was out tending the sheep, and something we'll find out is that he was faithful in the small things. You know, we'll find out later that David would put his life on the line to save sheep. You know, if a lion or bear came to take his sheep, he would put his life on the line to save those sheep. And the thing is, you know, David would go on to become a great king, and he is written about more than any other person in the Old Testament, and I think one of the reasons for that is he never lost his shepherd's heart. Like those times out in the field were not wasted, but God was prepping him. I mean, I mean look what Asaph says about David. Psalm 78, verse 70. It says, he chose David, his servant, and he took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. It was his heart. So this shepherd boy comes in out from the field because the prophet of the Lord calls for him. And, and no doubt, he probably didn't wash up. But he came straight in, this boy, this unlikely candidate. And ancient Jewish historian Josephus, he, he records that David at this time was 10 years old. Other historians would say no more than 15. So this boy comes in. But what made David so special? You know, he, he, he was a shepherd. I mean, a lot of guys were shepherd. He was uh, young. A lot of people were young. He was good looking. A lot of people can be good looking. Like, what made David so special? It was his heart. That he was a man after God's own heart. So, 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 so then the question is, like, how, how did David get a heart like that? How does this 10-year-old boy have a heart like that? And like, no doubt, it, it was time spent with the Lord. Like, as a shepherd out in a field, uh, you have a lot of time out in the field, and those sheep probably aren't too talkative. Like, that's not time just wasted. It's not time 
kicking rocks. Like, that's time spent with the Lord. But then it got me thinking still, like, how does a 10 or 15-year-old boy know the importance to spend time with the Lord? Like, like who, who, who pushed him in that direction? Who taught him the importance of spending time with the Lord? Because it, it probably wasn't his dad. Right, who, who, who wouldn't even say his name or get him to come in from the fields when a prophet of the Lord was there. And David doesn't talk too much about his dad. But in Psalm 86, verse 15, this is what David says. He says, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you, just as my mother did. He says, I, I serve you, Lord, just as my mother did. A woman, we don't even know her name. Yes, there are rumors and myths about her name, but in the Bible, we just don't get it. Yet multiple times, David calls her a servant of the Lord. He says, I serve you just as my mother did. So, so to, my, not my, to my parents in, in the room, what example are you setting? Like, what example do your kids have to follow? Do you think your kids would say the words that I follow the Lord just as my mother followed the Lord? Or I follow the Lord just as my father followed the Lord? Like, to my parents in the room, are, are we showing our children to, to value time with the Lord, to, to seek his will in all that they do, to serve him with everything that they got? Because let me tell you, friend, it is not, it's far more than just a one-time conversation after dinner or a conversation before bed, but it's something that has to be lived daily and shown daily. Friend, it is critical to have an impact on your children the same way that David's mother had an impact on him. And we can't let that slide. David says, I serve you just as my mother did. So in verse 13, this is what happens. It says, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully onto David. And Samuel went to Ramah. And we'll finish here. So Samuel anointed David. He anointed this boy. And it says, from that day on that the spirit of the Lord came powerfully onto David. Like that is the real anointing. You know, and something interesting is right here is the first time that we ever see the name David in the Bible. It is the first time he's mentioned. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Yet from this point on, David will be mentioned over a thousand times. He would write over 73 Psalms. 66 chapters of the Bible will be dedicated to his life. He is referenced over 59 times in the New Testament. This boy that we're introduced to here is written about more than any other character in the Old Testament. And the entirety of David's life is actually pointing forward to a man named Jesus. You know, Jesus was, was not known as the son of Abraham. Yes, he was called it, but that just meant you were Jewish. Jesus wasn't known as the son of Moses, but he was known as the son of, Ab or the son of David. Jesus is referred to as the son of David over a dozen times in the New Testament. You know, something significant 
happened this day in Bethlehem. You know, as we're closing, I want to invite the worship team back up here. Something significant happened that day in Bethlehem when a shepherd was out tending his sheep. And a messenger came to get him. You know, about a thousand years later, in those same fields near Bethlehem, there were other shepherds. There were other shepherds watching over their flock. And they were outcasts just like David. They were the rejects. Yet it was there that a company of heavenly hosts came and announced to some boys in a field that something significant has happened in Bethlehem. That the Savior has been born. And this news, the most important news to ever come to humanity, came not to the kings and queens of the land. Came not to the religious leaders, but it came to the unlikely. Came to some kids in a field. That the Savior has been born. You know, and this king, this next king of Israel, David, is a rather unlikely candidate. <laughs> but something that I hope we're beginning to see, something we are definitely going to see next week, is this bottom line, that God doesn't see how we see. You see, everyone in this story saw differently. You know, Samuel saw differently. Sam, Samuel had a standard. It was, it, was his, it was appearance. You remember when he saw Eliab, he's like, this is the guy. Jesse had a standard. It was age. The youngest, I don't, he's, he's in the field somewhere. But God had a standard. And it was the heart. And for us, it's so easy to judge people based on appearance based on age and miss their heart. Because something we're going to see is that God will use this unlikely king for the glory of his name because he sees his heart. That God could see what no one around David could see. His heart. Will you join me as we close in prayer? Lord, I am grateful that you see what no one else does. Lord, I pray that we rely and we lean on your perspective. Give us the understanding that our perspective can be flawed. And Lord, I'm grateful for the life of David. And Lord, I'm grateful that we have the ability and the opportunity to study it, to read it, to learn from it, to grow from it. And Lord, I'm grateful for what you have done and what you will continue to do. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.